Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of The Well. Of course, I am Dylan Bowman, and I hope everyone is having a great Thanksgiving holiday weekend, if slightly less festive than usual. But for your turkey trot or your weekend errands, I figured I would share a little bonus episode with you this week. That is a conversation with an old friend and personal inspiration of mine, Mike Alfred. Mike is a successful entrepreneur and a dedicated athlete and ultra runner himself who's currently training for the Western States 100 in 2021. In his professional life, Mike is currently the co-founder and CEO of a company called Digital Assets Data, and he was previously the co-founder and CEO of a company called Brightscope, which was acquired in 2016 for $30 million. And in this conversation, we discuss Mike's history as an entrepreneur and as an athlete, the highs and lows of business and sport, making investments, taking risks, the state of the markets, cryptocurrency, the sale of his business, and a lot more. So obviously this is not the normal ultra content, but uh, these episodes are some of my favorite to record. And the parallel to sport for me is just so obvious and so fun to explore. And uh, yeah, I mean, if it were up to me, I guess uh, I'd have a, a daily radio show where I could talk about all this stuff, you know, business, sports, politics, culture, um, as I just see so much value in, in learning from successful people from across the spectrum of our society, like Mike. Mike is a wealth of knowledge. I'm super, super grateful for his time and willingness to share his expertise with us here on the podcast. And finally, I can't believe I have to say this, but uh, as someone who listens to various business podcasts myself, I wanna make sure that I don't get sued and say here on the front end that Mike and I in this podcast do discuss the things that we've personally made investments in. And I wanna be clear that this is not in investment advice or whatever you're supposed to say as a disclaimer. Be smart and make your own decisions. I hope you guys really enjoy this episode. Please welcome Mike Alfred. Mike Alfred, welcome to the podcast. How are you, my friend? I'm great. It's nice to see you. Yeah, well, um, long time uh, internet buddies and, uh, you know, I've been a long time follower of yours and, um, you know, I think this is a great opportunity to uh, kind of explore several different interests uh, of both of ours when it comes to sport, ultra running, business, entrepreneurship. Mike, you know, obviously I've known you for a while, but uh, I think most of uh, our listeners will probably need a bit of introduction. So could you give us a, a little bit of your your background as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, sketch your, your career arc and um, maybe paint a little picture of, yeah, both that business life and how it relates to you as an athlete? Sure, sure. Uh, Dylan, I think we met in 2012 in Aspen. I think you were at the Little Nell at the time. And I, I was an aspiring young uh, ultra runner, older than you, but still young. Yeah. I think I was in my late 20s. And, and uh, I reached out to you because you were starting to win a bunch of races and up everywhere. And I said, hey, can we get together? So it's it's awesome to... <laughs> 
to, to be doing this almost like a decade later now. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. We, yeah, we shared a beer and at that point, um, yeah, my girlfriend was with us, who's now my wife. And so she was, yeah, she was also laughing when, uh, I said that we were going to get together cause she remembers that all these years later as well. And it's fun. That's awesome. So yeah, I was, I was born and raised in San Diego, California, uh, in the early eighties. And, uh, Went, went to Stanford undergrad. I started trading stocks uh, in my Stanford dorm room in the late 90s. So I had made all this money over the summer selling Cutco knives. I don't know if you've ever had, you know, the Cutco knives where you, you cut the penny with the scissors and you do my the brother, demonstration. My brother did the same thing. I was the like number 30 top salesperson in the country in the summer <laughs> of like 1999. So I had like, you know, I had like $15,000 and I threw it in an E-Trade account. I didn't care about buying stuff, mm. you know, when I was that age, I just wanted to learn how to invest. And I started buying tech stocks, uh, you know, in the late nineties in my dorm room. And I would wake my roommate up in the morning at freshman year, like two months into college. And I'm like, dude, I made 10 K 10 K this morning. He's like, shut the hell up and go back to bed, man. I'm trying to sleep. I got to study. <laughs> um, I was just fascinated with the world of markets and trading. And I've of course made a lot of money, lost a lot of money in the, in the early two thousands, you know, that was when the tech bubble burst, yeah. but it kind of sowed the seeds of like a long-term interest in investing and trading. Um, I ended up majoring in history. I graduated in 2003. I became a financial advisor. And for years I helped, uh, you know, mostly high net worth individuals invest uh, their own money. It ended up, uh, funny enough, my brother Ryan and I ended up working together and we would work with a lot of uh, women, right? So a lot of women that had been through divorce or had had their husband pass away and they were needing to figure out how to manage their wealth on their own. And, and for whatever reason, you know, we resonated really well um, with that community. A as we were building up our wealth management business, we came across, across the idea to score, to, to create a rating for every 401k plan in America. And so that was a company called Brightscope, uh, which we founded in 2008. Uh, we raised about $6 million, a little less than $6 million for that company. And we sold it uh, in about eight years later for, for a little over 30 million. So that was a good mm -hmm. uh, outcome for Ryan and I. We learned a lot. You know, we, we, we went on CNBC and we'd go to New York to meet with our clients, you know, firms like Goldman and, and you know, BlackRock and these large asset managers. Um, and so that, that was a very interesting experience. In, in the meantime, while we were doing that, both Ryan and I became endurance athletes, I read uh, Dean Karnassus's Ultra Marathon Man <laughs> yep. uh, in like 2008. Actually, it was funny. I, I ran a, a 1:30 half marathon, which was like a 20-minute PR over my previous half marathon because I was kind of fat and out of shape. Yeah. Uh, after college, I was a good athlete growing up, but you know, everybody in their mid 20s kind of has to decide whether they're going to continue to work out or going to get fat and lazy. And I was yep. fat and lazy. Um, and so I lost a little bit of weight and I cut 20 minutes off my half marathon PR and I was at a bar and I was bragging to this girl sitting next to me. And she's like, Oh, that's nothing. Dudes are running 50 and hundred miles now. I said, you, you're kidding with me. <laughs> and so I literally rush ordered ultra marathon, man. And I actually sent Dean Karnassus a note about this and he was very generous to respond. Yeah. Uh, uh, and we, we were connected with each other on Twitter and I've communicated a little bit over the years, but he was my inspiration initially. Cause that that whole passage about him being drunk at 30 years old and then like running, you know, down to Pacifica, like really resonated with me. And I decided mm -hmm. then and there that I was going to do, uh, you know, a 50 miler or a hundred miler or whatever. I ended up going from a half marathon to a marathon to 50 to hundred in like three months. Yeah. Uh, which just which is like me. Usually, yeah. That's what yeah, I did which, too. <laughs> which they say not to do, but the reality is, you yeah. know, if you're going to be running 50 and hundred milers, you probably don't want to be you know, working your way up to it over 10 years, you probably just need to rip the bandaid off. Yeah. 
Um, so I, so I did, you know, right after I met you, I, I did uh, Rocky Raccoon a couple times. You know, I finally, I got my PR in 2015. I did 16 hours, 12 minutes, which if it wasn't the USATF championship would have been a winning time like three yeah, or four yeah. of the previous seven years. So unfortunately I, it was a very competitive year that year. Um, I won the PCT 50 in, in uh, San Diego on the same trails where you won your first hundred, I think yeah, the San Diego yeah, 100. San Diego. Um, so I won that in 2014 and, uh, I won like the Malibu Creek 50 K in Southern California a couple of times. So th- those are like my highlights from my, my running <laughs> career. But I think for me, the running thing was just a way to push boundaries and, you know, find that thing deep inside myself that, that, you know, I, I knew was there, but I needed running to kind of bring out. And I found running goes really well with entrepreneurship. Cause if you think about it, running is like a, a very physical pursuit that has a, that has a mental component to it, right. That's important, particularly the further you go and business is the same way. It's primarily a mental pursuit, right. But you know, if you go far enough in, in business, there's definitely a physical component, uh, yeah. getting, getting on and off airplanes, yeah. hotel rooms, yeah. you know, how you use caffeine, how you sleep, all of those things are a big part <laughs> of your success yeah, in business, just like they are in, in, in running. So. Dude, so well put. And, you know, as we said offline, like this is exactly what I like to talk about on the show. You like, I'd love to talk about running and, and ultra specifically, but I love these like common threads of what makes you successful in business is also the things that makes you successful in, uh, in sport as well. And you strike me as somebody who's just sort of been like an overachiever your whole life. What does that come from? Is there anything from your background that led you to be the super ambitious guy who got into Stanford and then ultimately got into entrepreneurship very quickly? It sounds like, and, um, you know, be so successful at, at such a young age and then also like be really motivated to succeed athletically. Is there anything you can point to that, um, started that? Yeah, I can. I mean, it's nature and nurture, right? So genetically, even different from my own brothers and sisters, I was born with this like extreme passion to be the best, Mm -hmm. uh, about everything. Right. So like we've only talked about running and business, but you know, when I was 15, I was a pretty world-class guitar player. And actually at my wedding really? a couple of years ago, I, I busted out some Jimmy solos and, you know, live in front of people that had never seen me play before because they're on you know, my wife's side of the family. Right. They, they didn't know I was a musician, whereas all my friends that I've known for 20 or 30 years knew this. Uh, but, I, you know, for five years, I literally played guitar 14 hours a day. You know, I played from the morning I woke up to the morning I went to bed until my fingers bled until they stopped bleeding Um, because I at 15, 16, 17 years old, the only thing in the world I wanted to be was a world class guitar player. Like a rock star. Um, Yeah. And, you know, like at five, six, seven years old, I I basically I remember in kindergarten, I finished the math textbook. Uh, It was like 100 pages long. It was supposed to be like the whole semester. I finished it the first night. And my teacher took me to the principal's office. Like she was mad at me for being gifted and talented or whatever, which is (laughs) kind of odd thinking backwards, like why that was annoying to her. It was because she thought of the job as a babysitting job. And um, so she didn't like that, that I finished the textbook and I had nothing to do while she was trying to teach us about math. I had already finished the the whole year. And and I think a lot of that is genetic, right? The nurture side of it is my parents uh, from a very young age, they always said, whatever you want to do, you can do it. And if you show us you're committed to something, then we will give you all the other things you need, create that kind of support network around you to make Mm -hmm. sure that you achieve those goals. So I would say, Hey, I want to be a world-class guitarist. And they say, great, show us that you were willing to learn to read music. Mm -hmm. Um, take piano lessons for three months 
and do the first recital. And if you're willing to do that step, then we'll buy you an electric guitar, right? Because I just want to go straight to electric guitar and jam Jimmy and Led Zeppelin, right? Yeah. Um, but they're like, look, we want to see your commitment to it. So they put that kind of gate, that gating factor there that I had to do the first recital. And of course, because I was so motivated, I was willing to do that. So they taught me from a very young age, if you want to achieve something, you got to follow all the steps. There's no shortcuts. Um, but if you do, you can achieve kind of any goal you want. And I've, you know, those lessons have obviously really stuck with me. So at what point did you sort of decide that you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Was it sort of accidental when you and your brother partnered up after managing other people's money? Or was that always kind of the goal for you after graduating from Stanford? The first job I ever had was selling Cutco knives. Oh, right? yeah, uh, yeah. My, my mom told me, uh, my mom's very, you know, she she really emphasized education. So she said it from a young age, don't get a job. Your job is to get a- A's and maybe some B's, but yeah. I never really got B's. Uh, so from grade school on, we, we got paid by the A. So $5 or 10 for an A until like sixth grade and then like $10 for an A. Really? Seventh, eighth grade. Yeah. So like every report card, that was our- financial incentives uh, from a very yeah, young age. Yeah. Th- that was our, that was our uh, allowance. There was no chores. Like I didn't do the dishes to get chores, you know, to get, to get an allowance, I actually just had to get straight A's, which, which was something that I enjoyed doing. Um, and so, you know, from, from that very young age, the the incentives were there and sorry, I forgot the rest of your question, but I think it's a, it's a critical point about incentives. And yeah, no, I mean, you, you did answer it with the nature versus nurture and and having this inherent kind of unexplainable drive to just be good at whatever you do and sort of like a natural competitive competitiveness Uh, maybe, but also you were were talking about the entrepreneurship, right? So you were, you were saying, uh, how, how did you get into that? And my, I kind of got sidetracked, but my point was simply that from the very first thing that I did, it was make it on your own. So like eat what you kill, right? So when you sell Cutco knives, you don't get a salary. You only yeah. get paid if you, you sell something. And I learned really early on that I can't work for anyone else because I kept trying to be too creative uh, for, for any sort of boss that I might have had. So even the moment I graduated from Stanford, I didn't go work at an investment bank or a hedge fund. I said, I'm going to do something that allows me to kind of build my own mm-hmm. path. And the problem is actually once you become an entrepreneur, it's really hard to have a job. Right. So so I basically haven't had a job my entire life. So if, if I ever had to go have a traditional job uh, for very long, it, it tends to be a problem because I don't tend to follow authority very well. I tend yeah. to be too creative and not fit within the boxes the way people want. Yeah. It's funny. I have a, another entrepreneurial friend who's been on the podcast as well. And he said the exact same thing. He's, I, you know, when asked sort of like what motivated you to take this direction in your career, he's like, well, I'm kind of unemployable. and <laughs> I like, can't take direction and have my own ideas and, and like, am not really compromising about those ideas. So, you know, it's, I think it's, again, part of nature, you know, it's not something that comes supernaturally to me, but you know, the last two, three years of my life has like been the first time ever that I've like started to think entrepreneurially as well and start to, uh, kind of get away from, I think my natural tendencies, which is always to like get a comfortable job and and stay there for a long time and like, you know, do good work and perform well, but not necessarily like, um, think that creatively or that entrepreneurially. So uh, I think, yeah, it's, we're all balancing our own nature and nurture situation. So, so like it gets to something else that I'm super curious about in terms of just like staying motivated and uh, as athletes, obviously that's really important thing. And for me, 
you know, competition is the thing that motivates me, um, like to get out of bed and to train super hard. And I'm curious if that's similar for you, like what, what do you find the biggest motivation in? Is it beating the competition? Is it being really successful financially? Is it innovating, uh, within a particular category, moving an industry forward, a combination of those things? How do you think about motivation or what, what gets you fired up professionally? Yeah, I think it's all of those things, but I think it's a long, a kind of a long arc and a long spectrum, right? So I remember when I first met you, you were literally like the, the, the young whippersnapper. You, you, you laughed at me when I said I didn't, I didn't run every day. You said, Oh, you gotta do, you gotta exercise every single day. Like you, you just have to. And I said, well, you're like five years younger than me. And I remember five years ago, I had a little bit more energy too. And man, I'll tell you the 30 year old me is a little different than the 39 year old me. Um, and I think, I think these things kind of change organically over time. You know, when I was 18 or 22, I was highly motivated by money because I didn't have any. Um, but once you have some, it, it's not really as interesting anymore unless you're yeah. just kind of a weirdo, right? And that's really that interesting to you. Like, <laughs> I enjoy money for what it can do and the independence that it provides. But after you have a certain amount of it, it's really not an important thing to chase anymore unless you're kind of a psycho. Mm -hmm. So, you know, competition was the same way. Like I love to compete and I love to win, but I'll be honest, like in the last five years, like the desire to compete has gone down pretty dramatically. The thing that still motivates me is getting out in the high mountains, like in the Tetons or the Rockies in the summer and just going for a long run or like going for a long hike, you know, with my wife. Um, I just enjoy that so much more now than trying to beat somebody else. Right. Is that similar in business though, too? Like, have you found that your motivation to compete in business may have gone down similarly, or is that, has that not been kind of like the same type of drive that it is athletically? Um, like, do you think of competition as a motivator in business as well? It, it, it is, but I was destructively competitive in my late twenties. Like I wanted to destroy our competitors at Brightscope. <laughs> yeah. Right. Whereas now I'm much more collaborative I see opportunities to work with the competitors. I see the world as being less zero sum. Um, and so my motivation comes from impact, mm -hmm. right? It, not just on our customer base and the market, but on my team, right? Am I helping the, the people just below me step up a few levels? You know, being a leader is all about what other people achieve, not about what you achieve. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the further along you get in your career, the more you realize those things. So I did use competition as a driver in my early to mid twenties to late twenties. Right. But I would say today it's much less motivating. Mm -hmm. um, I'm still motivated by achieving great things. I want to make an impact, positive impact on the world. I want to positively impact, you know, my team and my customers. I want to generate a return for my investors, but, but legacy reputation, you know, things like that, these sort of abstract ideas that end up being really important um, are, are more important to me than anything kind of, about somebody else or about a competitor at this point. Yeah. So interesting, man. Is, are there any examples of maybe a, a big, uh, personal or professional failure that you've had in your career that you learned a lot from, and that you think has set you up for success later on? Any examples, um, resonate there? I mean, I mean, there's been many, right. For every success, there's some sort of failure. Uh, my, my failures historically, 
have been either emotional failures, like for example, with trading, where I let the emotions get the best of me, where you know intellectually I understand that I bought something that has good value, but then I size the position up too big, and then I let my emotions get the better of me when the position moves against me, and I liquidate at the bottom. Right? Every trader investor has a story like that. It has probably cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars over <laughs> a, a decade or two, but it's it's going to end up being a rounding error uh, in the long run. In terms of yeah. interpersonal stuff, that aggression, uh, that youthful aggression that was so helpful when starting companies in my 20s needed to be kind of tapered and needed to be managed a little bit better because, you know, I sent some nasty emails, for example, to a commercial real estate broker that was supposedly representing us, but was doing some stuff that was clearly dishonest um, and, you know, unethical. Uh, my board got wind of those emails. You know, this was eight years ago now, but they got wind of those emails uh, be, because I had sent them to somebody who was pretty powerful, who forwarded them to someone else, to someone yeah. else, and they ended up getting back. And I was actually right. Like later, my one of my board members a year later said, hey, you know, you were actually right about what you were saying, but you said it in such a poor tone and with such mm. poor class, uh, you beat up on the guys so badly that like, even though you were right, we were forced to take the other side to balance you out. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, that is a good example of, you know, I was a good entrepreneur. I was young, I was hungry, but I didn't have that kind of other gear of graciousness and gravitas and being generous in spirit, right? Uh, humility is another big one, right? Like I've been accused in my late twenties a lot of being arrogant, Anybody who knows me really well knows I'm not arrogant, but I certainly had the energy of an arrogant person. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. When we were charging ahead, trying to make, you know, build a billion dollar company overnight. And it seemed to seem like it was working for a while and everybody was saying it was working. Right. And so you start to believe your own press. Oh, yeah. Um, but all of those things are were opportunities for personal growth. Um, and so, you know, the personal growth opportunities in, in ultra running and business are much more interesting to me than than any of the professional, you know, or monetary changes in your life. Like the things that have really been interesting are the things that happened inside of me, you know, as I faced adversity. And I'm going through that a little bit, you know, now again with the current company that I'm working on, which has not been as successful uh, as I would have liked when we started off. We all have mm -hmm. dreams when we start these companies that they're going to be billion dollar publicly traded companies, right? And and at some point, you know, in some of the companies, they they look like they actually have that type of runway. Sometimes they don't. This particular company just never really caught on in the market the way we wanted. And so, you know, we're selling the company. It's not going to be a terrible outcome, but it certainly wasn't the outcome that, you know, we all dreamed of when we started it. Sure. Well, we'll get more into that here a little bit later, because I, I think that'll be another interesting thing to explore a little bit. But I love that whole description of this learning experience of you just writing a dickish email and, and sort of that being sort of like a major learning experience for you too, because like going back to what you're saying about you know, having the respect of your competitors and the respect of your coworkers and emphasizing your reputation and generally just like having this generosity of spirit over just always being, you know, the dominant winner. Um, I think that's something that, you know, athletes struggle with as well, you know, and that, um, you know, I've certainly been guilty of myself professionally as well. And in terms of just like, there's moments of being embarrassed in personal interactions or in how you approached, you know, even like a certain, um, you know, business or, you know, your psychology before a race, it's all, uh, 
it's all interconnected. So are there things that you find like that you implement into like your training for ultra running that you think is similar to how you approach your daily life? Like, uh, do you approach it with the similar type of dedication and, um, and sort of focus that you do your business life? Any, uh, like habits or, um, routines? Yeah. So, so I would say that I've never had a like really firm training plan. Like I know you guys at the professional level, you have coaches and you stick to a really specific, you try to right stick to a more specific plan. I have always trained entirely by feel right. And entirely self-directed. I read a bunch, I absorb a lot, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, like I've kind of dialed in what works for my body, even running hundreds now, like my last hundred basically I had zero, uh, zero issues the whole race. It was almost anticlimactic because I expect to have some adversity in a hundred and there was literally none mm-hmm. across the finish line feeling almost exactly the way I did at the start. No stomach issues, no feet issues, no energy issues, no decline in performance whatsoever. Uh, you know, that was just a great, it was a great race and it was because I trained by feel and I didn't get injured. And I think, you know, for, for entrepreneurs, the biggest risk is, you know, and it's the same as in, in running and running it's overtraining, right? So people who love to run, they tend to run too much. They don't listen to their body that the day they should have gone out to run 25 or whatever, they got five steps in, they knew something wasn't, wasn't right, but they said they were going to run 25 that day and they finish, they finish the, the run and they get a stress fracture. It's the same thing in business. Like you have to disconnect yourself Mm. from the business. You have to, you have to go for long runs. You have to take some time off. You've got to read books and have other pursuits outside of business because you can burn out uh, in business and entrepreneurship in the same way that you can overtrain. And it's all about longevity, right? So if you're able to stay in the CEO seat in any business for 10, 15, 20 years, you're going to do really well, right? Because the only way you're going to stay in that seat is if the business is working and you're learning and you're growing uh, rapidly, right? And the same thing with running, as you know, like if, if you can build up a base of training miles and you can not get injured for five or 10 consecutive years, you know, you're probably going to have some of your best performances in year seven, eight, nine, because you've accumulated and aggregated all of this experience, all of the training miles, right? Your body just it's got the muscle memory of knowing how to run these long distances. Um, and I think, I think, uh, they, they kind of balance each other out like that. Actually, when my businesses are doing the best, I tend to also be running really well because the running, uh, actually balances out the energy from the, from the entrepreneurship side. And the guys I know who, and gals who run companies that don't run or don't have anything physical like that, they tend to not sleep as well. They tend to drink too much Red Bull, right? They tend to think that staying at the office for 16 hours a day is somehow going to change the trajectory of the business. Um, and in my personal view, leaving the office at one or two in the afternoon and going for a two hour run is probably the best thing you could do for the company mm-hmm. if you're being thoughtful. So it's almost like when you go on your two hour run, it's almost like a rest day from work, you know, in the same day mm-hmm. that in your training plan, you need a rest day from, from your training as well. That's a have really interesting. Have you ever gotten an email that like when you first get it, it's just overwhelming because it seems like it's really problematic and there's no solution and you yeah. just, and then you go for a run and you come back and look at the email again and the, and the answer, the elegant solution just magically comes to you. Yeah. I find that, I find that happens all the time. Um, and so I think a lot of people are trying to brute force business decisions and business outcomes. And in reality, like you almost want to take a meditative Zen approach to it and go for your long run 
and passively consider the problem that was in that email, but not uh-huh. actively, right? You're not sitting there like banging your head against the wall trying to solve it. You're just running and letting your mind wander and magically by the end of the run, oh, elegant solution. I know exactly what I'm going to do it's beautiful. with this email. That, yeah. That's something that I've just found over and over and over again, just works. Yeah. And to your point about how you're oftentimes your best physical or athletic performances sort of coincide with your best, uh, I guess, professional performances or mm-hmm. professional outcomes as well, I think is another thing that I harp on quite a bit in this podcast as well. It's like, yeah, similarly for me, you know, when I have my personal life dialed, when I feel like I'm heading in the right direction personally, professionally, um, and not like stressed out about you know, any number of various things that then my training just starts to click and I get super Mm -hmm. fit, super quick. And even if I'm not training like uh, an exorbitant amount, I, my, my performance is, is better. And it's not necessarily like when I'm training at my best or, or uh, training at my hardest, I should say to where my performances are, are great. So and, and Dylan, I'd balance? say there's a, there's a reason why a lot of the fastest ultra runners in the world are like nurses, right. Yeah. Or like work at a, you know, a retail store or whatever, like high stress, uh, business and entrepreneurial pursuits are not a good Real, really a good yeah. mix. Yeah. And in, the, in yeah. the long run, like in my twenties, I could tolerate a certain amount of business stress. I'll tell you like part of the reason why I barely raced in the last five years, other than Leadville last summer, which was a, it was a 2450. So not terrible. Right. But, but the, the shape that I was in, in 2015, I should have been able to go sub 20 at Leadville. I wasn't going to get it anywhere near that uh, just because I've had heavy doses of stress over the last five years that, you know, most professional ultra runners just are not going to have because you're yeah. not trying to be CEO of like a high expectation software business with multiple billionaire investors and yeah. raising tens of millions of dollars of capital, right? Like that's not generally, you don't see those two things going together. And I don't really see a lot of growth stage software uh, CEOs that do ultras. In fact, I, I don't know any, uh, <laughs> right. they're all, they're all shocked that that's the case. And the reality is may, maybe I was re- kind of living on borrowed time there because when the balance was perfect, when the business was going well and I was training just the right amount, the cumulative stress didn't overload. Mm-hmm. But any time that the stress from the business kind of started to go past the red line or the combination of the stress from the business and my actual training went over 60 or 80 miles a week, it would snap. Mm-hmm. And that just started happening in the last five years. And I felt that kind of deadening in the legs uh, sort of experience that you don't want to feel if you, if you want to run a fast hundred. Um, I'm hoping that between now and Western States, because I'm, I'm registered for Western States <laughs> yeah. in 2021, that I will find a little bit of peace after, you know, we potentially do a transaction yeah. with my current company and I'll really be able to spend six months training hard for Western States so I can have my last swan song yeah. and maybe, maybe drop a sub 20 hour, you know, at Western States, which would be a great way to kind of wrap things up in terms of my hundred mile career. Wrap things up. Come on, man. It's not wrapping it up, but that, that would be amazing. I mean, yeah. And, and maybe, uh, in addition to training your ass off, you could also be, uh, spending a lot of time not thinking about business, meditating and keeping your, your personal stress levels really low. But I, I mean, I so resonate with what you're saying. I mean, last year was a really tough year for me, not only with being injured, but just in my personal life, just kind of feeling lost and without direction. And like, even when I started getting healthy again, like it just didn't feel the same, you know, because like my internal life was just feeling so off that even, you know, runs that should have felt fairly easy or workouts that I used to be able to do, um, you know, multiple days a week, just like felt like such a heavy lift because that internal energy was 
being so sapped by, you know, other psychological stress. So you, you touched on something that I think is interesting and that is, you know, like dealing with external expectations. And it strikes me that, you know, that's probably something that is also um, both a blessing and a curse sometimes as, as a born leader and a CEO, um, you know, you're the one who ultimately is accountable for the, the performance of whatever venture you're, you're in charge of at the time. How do you deal with those external expectations? And I mean, are there anything that, anything that you've learned to help manage that in, in a more healthy way? So, so the honest truth is that when, um, the expectations are met, it's a fun job. And when they're not, it's not a fun job. Right. Right. I I wish there was some, some magic to it, but I think, you know, there, there's some element of it of just setting the right expectations that are achievable and then achieving them. You know, a a lot of my success in life is simply doing what I say I'm going to do. Right. Mm -hmm. I say, I'm going to hire 10 people and I'm going to build a certain product and I'm going to achieve a certain level of revenue. And if I do that, then that's achieving expectations. I think the downside and the dark side of it is that sometimes in business, you don't control all the outcomes, right? And things don't go the way you want. And, you know, how you manage the negative, the downside, you know, the unfulfilled expectations is a big part of maturity and leadership. And, you know, I'll I'll tell you, I've met investors that believe that they're 10 for 10, right? They've never made a mistake. And those are the hardest and worst investors to have to deal with because they have no empathy uh, if things don't go exactly as expected. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say one of the, maybe the blessings of, of for the last five years for me is understanding that when things don't go exactly the way you want, that that's an opportunity for, for growth and an opportunity for you to show empathy, you know, to other entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. So I work now, I'm on the board of three or four other companies, where I worked in one case, I'm the chairman in other cases, I'm the only other board member uh, in two of those cases where I work directly with the CEOs. In some cases they're younger and less experienced. And I have a little bit more understanding of what those folks are going through now because I haven't just had success. I've had some successful outcomes and I've had some that were less successful. Um, I think it's really healthy to, to go through those times. There's no great times in life without uh, times that aren't so great. And I think for you, the blessing will be now you're going to, be more appreciative of those times where everything's clicking and everything's working because you had a long period, Dylan, where like everything was working true. for you. Yep. And, and I, I think we all, those of us who've been through the, the down cycle a couple times, whether in running or, or business, they, we always can see, Hey, that person's having a great run. Yeah. I hope they're prepared for that down cycle, but <laughs> yeah. you know, you're, you're a really tough guy and you'll bounce back of course, from this, just like any other adversity. But I, I view adversity and, and expectations and all that stuff as a positive thing. It's all about how you how you manage them. One of the things I've learned too is just to think about the individual expectations individually, right? So if you have a specific investor, for example, that is very focused on financials, spend a little bit more time before you give them, you set financial expectations and okay. forecasts, right? With that particular investor, um, because they're going to be particularly perturbed if you put out a set of expectations and then immediately start falling behind them. Mm-hmm. Whereas other investors are more interested in the product and they're more interested in the feeling of momentum, right? Uh, versus the actual numbers as they come in. And so uh, spending a little bit of time understanding what people are expecting in a business context, uh, I think is really important. So how do you think about goal setting? Um, you know, this is, I think, another thing that you've already touched on in terms of like, you when you say something, you're going to do it, you know, and I, I have a similar uh, personality myself in that, like, 
I just feel like I need to say things out loud or put things down in order to actually believe that they're, they're possible. Mm-hmm. And with operating without a concrete goal, I sort of turn into a bit of a basket case. And so like this year is a perfect example at the beginning of COVID when there was no races on the horizon and uh, seemingly no hope that they were going to come back anytime soon. You know, as you said earlier in the podcast, there's a big temptation to just get fat and lazy. And, uh, and I, that's when I sort of realized, okay, I need to set a goal now. So, and then of course, like I did the Wonderland trail and it was a great project to kind of devote my summer towards. And it kept me motivated. It kept me accountable to myself every day. Is there a similar aspect to that in business? Like, how do you think about goal setting professionally? Yeah, absolutely. There, uh, everybody should have some sort of driving force, right? Some, some reason for being, right? Some, some reason for doing the things that, that you do. I think it's different for everybody though. Like I, I think as a younger CEO, I was very focused on numbers and financial outcomes. And I think as I get further along in my career, I'm more focused on some of the intangible outcomes, the difference making, the, the legacy components that frankly are just not financial. Uh, anymore. They're, they're not as easy to measure. They say a goal should be specific, right? And measurable and yeah. all these things. And um, that, that, that may be helpful for certain types of goals, but I, I'm kind of creative and I like to, to keep things open. And I've also found that, that I think that a lot of life is like what you choose not to do as opposed to what you do. So a lot of my goals now are things that are more abstract, right? Like being able to let go a little bit, like mm-hmm. being able, finding ways to actually be able to relax and not have a goal mm-hmm. in certain situations, which is actually a problem for me because I'm so type A on the other side that setting goals is not the problem. The problem is that I don't know how to relax. I don't uh, know how to let go. I don't know how to release in investing. For example, like one of the best ways to be a great investor is to learn how to sit on your hands. So actually your goal is, is to literally do nothing. Like once you've made the decision, like if, if, if you like CVS at $55 a share and it goes to $65 a share, but you think it's worth $125 a share, the worst thing you can do is sell some Stop. at $65 a share. Yeah, you have yeah. to literally do nothing and allow the stock to go to 125 which was your original target. And so many people have trouble. They get itch, itchy trigger fingers and they think, oh, I've already made money. Let me put the money in the bank, right? Let me let me bank it so that I can feel good about the outcome when in reality, what you need to do is absolutely nothing. Mm. And so I'm kind of of two minds about this. Like I think if you have no goals at all, you'll probably end up pretty average. You probably won't be a top one percenter at anything in life. Um, but if you're really going to be happy one percenter, you also need to learn how to not have goals, mm. right? So it's this weird kind of dichotomy where on one hand, in order to get to that one percent level at anything, you had to have a lot of goals. But then once you're in that one percent, if you don't want to become an alcoholic or commit suicide or have all kinds of issues or not be able to talk to your kids or not be able to stay married because you have to get divorced four times. You know, think about all the billionaires yeah. that you'd think would be happy because because a lot of poor people think that if they just had a billion dollars, it would solve all their problems. But but they're constantly having issues mm. because the things that maybe drove them to become a billionaire are also the things that keep them from fully enjoying life and being happy. And so I'm very conscientious and try to be thoughtful about the balance between having goals and the ability to do nothing and and relax. It's so true, man. And the parallel with ultra running is so perfect as well, because, you know, oftentimes when you have these big successes or you have, I mean, whether it's a a big success or a big failure, oftentimes it's like, you know, you're riding the wave of this positive 
experience and this positive performance and you're like, oh, I'm so good. I've got this figured out now. Let's get back to it immediately. And similarly, you know, if things go really poorly, rather than taking a step back and learning from that experience, you want to just like get back to it right away. And you, you can't like turn that, um, you know, that sort of like type a personality trait off. And it's, yeah, it's so obvious as, as you said that about, you know, some of the, the world's theoretically most successful people, you know, potentially in their, their personal lives, they're, they're not necessarily so successful because they can't, they can't turn that off. And, and I would say you just hit on the key thing that I'm trying to do at this point in my life, you know, I'm going to turn 40 next year. I'm so much less interested in accolades and accomplishments and goals. And I'm much, much more interested in, in finding ways to be sustainably happy, right. Yeah. To take care of my wife, to, to maybe have a family, to, to give back more, right. To spend more time enjoying life and less time putting unnecessarily high levels of stress and expectations on myself. Cause the one thing I will tell you about myself is nobody's ever put higher expectations on me than I have. Right. And I think that's generally going to be true of most successful people in any discipline, but you know, some people put unnecessarily high. I mean, I, I could literally kill myself over the next 10 years if I continue to work at the same level that I did, you know, yeah. in my mid to late twenties and train at the same level simultaneously. Like it's just not sustainable. Right. Yeah. So like, I'm proud of the things I've accomplished. I know that some of those things I only would have accomplished with, you know, by being a maniac, but I, my goal for my, you know, 40th and 50th and 60th birthday is not to be a maniac. Yeah. Right. So if I have a goal, it's literally to be the antithesis of what I was before. Wow. Cool, man. So I want to touch on uh, something that I think is also really interesting that you alluded to earlier, and that is your relationship with your brother, um, Ryan and, and, you know, he, he and I know each other loosely as well. And I follow both you guys and he's also very similar and you guys have been in business together, but he's also seems to be a big overachiever and somebody who, um, is also very successful. And, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your guys's relationship, maybe give a little background on, on Ryan and how you guys work together, where you guys, uh, sort of balance each other out and, uh, you know, in what ways you complement each other. Sure. Well, our, our relationship is pretty special. Um, we've been working together. We've obviously been brothers for 37 years. Yeah. Um, and believe it or not, we used to fight growing up, uh, because when I had to share a bedroom with him, I found that, you know, abhorrent. I, yeah. I really didn't, you know, we, we would fight, I would pick on him. He threw a chair across the room once like a heavy chair that almost hit, took, took out my head. Uh, but I deserved it. I was kind of, I think I'm sure I was being a dick at the time, but believe it or not, our, our relationship kind of blossomed later. So I graduated Stanford 2003. He graduated from Harvard in 05 and I started recruiting him to come work with me. Right. Cause I just figured like, if we work together, we could build something mm -hmm. uh, great together. And he, you know, he could have gone to work at Merrill Lynch or Goldman doing investment banking in New York. And he did some summer internships out in New York. Uh, but I convinced him to come out to San Diego and basically for the first year or two, we made no money and we were trying to build this wealth management business. Uh, but through the process of trying to build the wealth management business, we discovered, you know, the opportunity to build Brightscope, which was kind of our breakout mm. success story. And, you know, we, we worked, hand in hand through that whole process, learning, growing together. Um, we do very different things. I think one of the biggest challenges early on was we both wanted to be co-CEO type of thing. And the reality is only one of us was really CEO. Mm. Um, but at the beginning, you know, we, we didn't really understand the division of responsibilities. I think if you work with family, one of the most important things, uh, first, obviously you need to respect their 
unique capabilities. So I actually work with all of my siblings or basically all of my siblings at this point. Yeah. Um, and the most important thing is that everybody kind of understands what everybody else is good at. And you carve out roles and responsibilities for those people that allow them to, within their own little bubble, do those things without interruption, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think any conflict we had early on was like, hey, who's supposed to do this? Well, I think I can do it. Well, I think I can do it. Well, who of us is better at it? And working through those questions and getting to you know, a place where it was very clear that I was sort of CEO, he was COO, I was going to do more of the leading on fundraising, you know, the investor relationships, the external communications with the press and with, you know, the the other stakeholders and, and that Ryan would really lead internally building the development team, the technology team, running product, deciding what we're going to build, making sure it got built, making sure the products get shipped, making sure the customers are happy, all that stuff. And so we've been working together for 15 years now. Um, When we sold Brightscope in 2016, we actually separated for a period of time where he started a crypto hedge fund called Distributed Global. That fund has 150 million now. He's still a partner in that fund. Um, And I started this uh, digital assets data, which is a crypto uh, related data business. He was a board member. He helped me kind of start the company, but he wasn't in the business every day. But then in uh, 2019, he called me one day in January and said, I think I want to come back and, and work with you. So he came back inside <laughs> the business. Uh, and so we were right back where we started again after basically, I guess it was like a year and three month break from working together every day. Um, and so look, the, the relationship's been probably the most important determinant uh, in, from a professional standpoint in my success. I'd say every CEO needs a number two, right? That, that you partner with, that you can yeah. rely on because CEOs in general, like if I can make a broad generalization, tend to be more of like the visionaries, mm-hmm. more of the people who like to talk, uh, you know, and, and, and sort of flowery language about yeah. the mission and the vision and where things are going, but somebody has to actually fucking build the Do product. It. Yeah. Um, and somebody has to figure out how to keep the trains running on time and execute um, and so if that hadn't been Ryan, I don't know who it would have been, but uh, for us, I think we both solved a problem for each other in terms of providing something that the other person didn't have and, and collectively the formula worked. It's yeah, it's so cool. And as I alluded to offline to you as well, my brother and I are in the process of getting something off the ground ourselves right now. And, uh, you know, are so you, much do you need of, any investors are you raising yeah, right now? Yeah, dude, we'll, we'll talk about it later. Love to hear um, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll definitely talk about it, but yeah, I mean, so much of that resonated and, and actually, um, we had a similar conversation just last week of like, okay, like actually who, who's in charge here? You know, we need to figure this out because he and I get along really well and we're also very close in age. In fact, even closer than you and Ryan, we're only 14 months apart. And, um, and we've, we've always been close throughout our lives and, um, but, and, you know, we've never tried to work together professionally and, and there, there have been some, you know, very mild, um, kind of conflicts, I guess you could, you could call them, but, um, yeah, it was a, a realization last week that it was like, okay, we have to actually like figure out who's in charge of what and like, who's good at what and, uh, and move, move forward, uh, under, you know, those assumptions. So, you know, you talked about the market a little bit. You talked about crypto a little bit. I want to get to those things uh, here in just a sec, but I want to also touch on, um, you know, I know you do some kind of like investing and um, you're on the board of some companies. How do you think about risk-taking in that regard? Like when you're about to invest in a company, uh, I'm sure 
you know, part of it is analytical. Part of it is like a feeling that you have, but how do you assess risk and how do you deal with self-doubt when it comes to your personal investments? So, you know, look, I've been investing for 20 something years, so it's hard to condense everything. I've, I mean, I've read tens or hundreds of thousands of pages of, of, of writing on this. I've, I've studied markets for a long time. And so what I've come to is a portfolio construction and asset allocation that kind of works for me. And so one of the primary ways you mitigate risk in investing is how you construct the portfolio, right? So, um, you know, individual companies are risky. Uh, companies in a basket are less risky and companies paired with cash, paired with crypto, paired with real estate, paired with bonds are the least risky, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's all about when you're putting together a portfolio, like if you just looked at some of my early stage investing in a vacuum, you'd say that guy's a crazy risk taker and just loves risk and eats it for breakfast. If you looked at how much cash I'd carried over the last decade, you'd say, man, that guy's like a grandpa. Uh, you know, he's, he's like a 75 year old man. What's, what's yeah. up with that guy? He doesn't take any risk. And so I think it's really important. You can really only understand how somebody thinks about money and how they think about their investing when you can really consider the entire portfolio holistically and understand how all of those components play well together. That said, when it comes to early stage investing, for me, I try to limit, you know, like let's say, give a, a specific example. Like I typically only put with one exception, like $50,000 at a time in any mm -hmm. one company, right? So that's one risk parameter for me. The most I can lose in any one early stage company um, that's a startup or series A type of type company is 50,000. Um, 50,000, you know, nobody wants to lose 50,000, but frankly, if I lose 50,000 a few times, it's not going to change my yeah. trajectory. And so I, I mitigate risk a little bit through position sizing, portfolio construction, but also I only invest in CEOs that I know, and I know to have integrity because first and foremost, if, if you don't want to lose money and you don't want to, you know, be involved in scams or fraud or whatever, it's really important to be careful about who you invest with. And so I spend a lot of time trying to understand that person, that person's background, understanding what motivates them. Um, because, you know, a lot of businesses will work and a lot of businesses won't work, but you will never make money investing with cheaters, scammers, fraudsters, mm -hmm. et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so way at the top of the funnel, I'm evaluating for personal character, integrity, et cetera. Then only after that, am I saying, okay, what's the market here? And can this entrepreneur achieve that? And then only after that, am I asking, and what valuation am I paying? What form of security am I taking when I put the money in? And then what other ways can I mitigate the investment, uh, the risk by sitting on the board, being an advisor, mm -hmm. you know, juicing my preferred equity invest investment by getting common shares, by being an advisor, sitting on the board, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Right. So I kind of go through that whole matrix um, over the course of, of evaluating an investment. And, you know, it has to fit into my broader themes, right? Like, so I'm investing in things like CBD and wellness, because I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, over the next 20 years, I'm, I'm in, you know, investing in industrial automation because mm -hmm. that seems inevitable to me. I'm investing in crypto because that's also inevitable, right? Like when we look back 10 or 15 years from now, we're going to say, man, what a missed opportunity, <laughs> yeah. you know, that I didn't buy more Bitcoin, you know, when I could have, you know, under 20 or 30,000, it's going to be half a million or a million dollars, you know, per Bitcoin. And, you know, People aren't people aren't going to get it just like they didn't understand Amazon, right? Yeah. Or didn't understand Apple or didn't understand Google twenty years ago. I remember investing in those stocks for our customers, uh, you know, in the wealth management business, and I'd literally get calls from people saying, "What is this Google thing? How do we know it's going to be around? Like, how do we know it's as real as a bank or yeah. you know, JC Penny?" Yeah. And it's like, well. 
you know, JCPenney doesn't seem to have much of a future uh, going forward if you think about how e-commerce is going to disrupt things, right? Yeah. But but most people don't think that way. They look at the present and they're overly focused on what's going on right in front of their nose and, and less able to understand intertemporal moments a year out. Thursday, three years from now, on a Thursday, how do you think you're going to feel, Dylan? What, if you could actually answer that question perfectly, um, you'd be a way better investor. But yeah. it's really hard to step outside of the present and the sort of Pavlovian, I want something, I want it now, I want to eat, I will eat now, I mm-hmm. want money, let me... Ch- cut corners. Investing is all about not cutting corners, all about looking out in the future and being patient. So cool. And man, you just also basically led me right into another question that I really was interested in talking to you about. And I want to get more into into crypto in a sec, but you know, recognizing these long-term trends and trying to capitalize on those. And um, as I you know, I started getting interested in in markets and investing when I was about, you know, 29 or 30. And it was mostly because I had a little bit extra cash finally to actually start thinking about things like that. And I think I was listening to a podcast or something where they basically just uh, espoused a similar philosophy that you just said, and that like recognize trends that seem like they're inevitable and get there quicker than anybody. (laughs) And, you know, for me, as I thought about that, there was two things. One was Bitcoin. So I bought into Bitcoin when I think it was like 4,500 bucks or something like that. Uh, in other cryptocurrencies, and then also cannabis. So I, I put uh, you know some of my money into some cannabis-related ETFs because I felt like this trend is inevitable. Eventually, cannabis is going to be federally legal, right? And so, what can I do to position myself in such a way to uh, capitalize on what I think is an inevitability? Um, maybe. Um, I mean, I, this was sort of like my introduction into the the whole conversation of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. So um, that was just sort of like a personal anecdote of my, yeah, I mean, because yeah. really those are the the only personal like investments that I've ever made in addition to having like a 401k, which is basically automated at this point. Um, anything that resonates there with you or, you know, maybe just launch into, you know, cryptocurrencies, why you're so bullish on them and why you think they're inevitably going to be a big part of all of our um, kind of financial lives. Yeah. And and one thing I would add is that um, on your previous point is that it's great to identify trends. um, And that works really well with kind of long duration investing when you're looking out five, 10, 15 years, um, or you're doing early stage investing, like I often do where you're investing in seed stage companies right at a very early stage but there's also the opportunity to take advantage of things that are underpriced in public markets so for example you know i'm i'm a big alcohol investor right mm-hmm. i i have a big position in Heineken and Diageo. They both happen to be up 10% today, which is awesome (laughs) because I've been waiting throughout this sort of COVID crisis. If you look out five or 10 years, there's a clear premiumization trend in alcohol. Young people drink less, but when they do drink, they want higher quality spirits, Mm -hmm. higher quality beer. They want seltzers now, right? Um, And so those stocks though were trading during COVID, like no one's ever going to drink again. Um, And so the way I describe my investing style succinctly is value investing, but without being afraid of the new thing, right? So traditional value investors, Graham and Dodd investors liked cigar butt companies, right? These old industrial companies or companies that were almost like going out of business, but they would print cash for the last five years of their life and that would generate a return. 
kind of the modern Buffett style is, you know, buying high quality companies at a reasonable price, right? So really good companies like Apple, but when they, you know, you could have bought Apple just a few years ago for 10 or 15 times earnings, which was, you know, in retrospect, a really good price as opposed yeah. to 30 or 40 times earnings. Um, but, you know, what you won't see Warren Buffett do is buy Bitcoin and you won't see him buy Amazon until, you know, 20 years after you should have bought it. And so, what I what I'm trying to do with my investing in the long run is marry that kind of value oriented mm-hmm. discipline, right? So, being being able to spot you know CVS at eight times earning as a clear value, or Heineken or 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 Pepsi or something when it goes down to eighteen or nineteen times earnings as a clear value. These are world class uh, companies that are not going to be disrupted purely by technology, right? They're going to be around for a long time. The integrated healthcare trend is is very real. CVS should literally be double the price right now. And I think it'll get there over the next few years. Um, that's not going to be a sexy story for like a technology investor or a venture investor, but it's still a really, really good investment. Mm-hmm. And you collect your 3% dividend while you're holding it. But the type of person who buys CVS usually doesn't also buy Bitcoin. Yeah. And so one of the best investment strategies that I think works, um, especially for younger people, is to have a barbell. So on one end, you have these sort of underpriced, very safe, unlikely to ever lose a dollar if you hold them for a year or two. right? So I'd put Pepsi and Diageo and Heineken and CVS and Bristol-Myers Squibb and Kroger and even Alibaba, right, in that type of category. These are world-class targets. Another one that I started buying at 60 three years ago. It's trading at like 165 now, right? Like you're not going to lose money buying companies like Target when you buy them under 10 times earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can if you can own a basket of these really well-priced, consistent dividend growers, right, and then you pair that with innovation, mm-hmm. Bitcoin and CBD and cannabis and early stage and technology, right? Biotech, like I have a significant... I think I own 20 stakes in 20 biotech companies mm-hmm. now. And that's actually a space where I've done better than almost any other space. You, again, you don't see Buffett buying biotech because a classic value investor doesn't learn anything new, can't buy those names. But you also see a bunch of young people who only own Tesla and Netflix, yeah. which works until it doesn't, right? Yeah. And those those stocks, when they, when they decline, will decline 80% because they're, in my opinion, at this point, pretty fairly valued. Um, that's being generous. Yeah. Um, they're probably significantly Overvalued. You should not buy should not buy stocks at fifty or hundred times uh, 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 sales uh, unless you are planning on being down eighty percent at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So interesting. Um, so let's talk about um, Bitcoin a little bit and cryptocurrencies in general. Why are you uh, so so bullish on on the future of crypto assets? So Bitcoin's probably the most important uh, investment idea slash change in the monetary system slash change in the way currencies work uh, in our lifetime and, and maybe in several lifetimes, maybe in, in a couple generations, a couple, a couple centuries. Uh, you know, most currencies today in the world are what we call fiat currencies. They're issued by governments. Uh, the problem with that, as you've seen in Venezuela and Lebanon and even places like China and Russia, where there's all kinds of capital controls and the government can basically mess with you, um, is that they're highly manipulated, right, by the government. And so you literally have people that worked for years and years and years in places like Venezuela and Argentina and Central Africa, Zimbabwe. They followed all the rules and then they woke up one day and the currency's been devalued by 50%. And so the only reason why we don't think about that in the United States is that the, the, the US dollar is relatively stable relative to most of these other currencies. That said, I can promise you with 100% certainty that if you hold a dollar bill for the next 10 years, that dollar bill will buy less products. 
in 10 mm. years from now. And that is because of inflation, which runs typically between, say, 1% and 5% in the United States over the long run. And so it's this sort of hidden tax on your money if you leave your savings denominated in the U.S. dollar. Now, what happened in the last year is that we've had unprecedented monetary interventions, right? We've had fiscal stimulus. We've had the Fed buying bonds. We've had increases in debt by almost every government in the world. And so we're playing this kind of crazy game where I think a lot of people are starting to question how much the dollar is really going to be worth. We basically increased the money supply by 20% in this country over the last 12 months. You're crazy if you don't think that means your dollar is potentially 20% less valuable if you just leave it in a savings account. And so Bitcoin is this beautiful alternative to this fiat, highly manipulated you know, currency and monetary regime that allows you to buy an asset that has a fixed cap, right? There's a, there'll only ever be 21 million. It's distributed just like the internet, right? So nobody, China can shut down the internet for its own citizens, but they can't shut down the whole internet. Mm. China can also say, hey, you can't buy Bitcoin, but they can't shut down Bitcoin because it's distributed across, you know, tens and tens of thousands of machines all over, you know, running a full node, uh, you know, of the Bitcoin software. So it's this monetary system that's run by code. It cannot be manipulated by a bunch of old guys sitting in a room, raising and lowering interest rates and increasing and decreasing the monetary supply. And it, it plays on trend with technological curve, the S-curve of the internet adoption, right? If you think about the price of Bitcoin, it should mirror the adoption of Bitcoin itself, which has been explosive mm-hmm. and will continue to be explosive, particularly in a world where nobody wants to care, carry dollar bills anymore, mm-hmm. right? How many times have you been to the ATM since the crisis? A lot of people ran to the ATM in March to pull out $500 and they still have that $500 yep. in their wallet. The only reason why I have dollars is because I love to play poker, you know, and, and so I, I keep dollars on me so that I'm, I can I you know, buy chips. I never have cash. Never have cash around. Yeah. So, so Bitcoin is perfectly tuned, perfectly designed for the digital future. And it's it's monetary design and it's, it is perfect for a world that's highly manipulated by central banks, by governments, you know, printing money, monetizing debt, buying assets. Uh, it's, it's, it's a crazy world. And, and the best way to protect yourself is to own Bitcoin. You know, my base case for the value of Bitcoin is trading at 15,000 today. I think, you know, I was telling people to buy it at 5,000 back in March and I've been very consistent on Twitter and LinkedIn. I know you've seen yep. all these posts at 6,000, 7,000, <laughs> yeah. 8,000. And the reason is, is because I think it's going to be worth two or 300,000 within the next three to five years at sort of a, a sort of a minimum, mm-hmm. just thinking about supply versus demand, right? There's, the current market cap is only about 300, a little under 300 billion, but there's tens and tens of trillions of dollars of fiat currencies floating around, right? That are going to be looking for a home. Uh, the gold market's like $9 trillion, right? So even if you just grow to the size of the gold market, gold's down 5%, by the way, uh, today, uh, you know, uh, Bitcoin's down a little bit. It's actually not a bad day to, to buy some. I bought a little bit more GBTC today. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think, look, if you, if you have cash, um, right now, and you don't own Bitcoin, a huge mistake. At the very least, take 10, 15, 20% of your cash savings. Let's say you have 20,000, you know, 4,000 or 5,000 should be in Bitcoin. It's mm-hmm. liquid. If you need if you need to use it to pay bills down the line, you can sell it in the future. You'll be selling at a higher price. I'll, I'll be very sad for you that you have to sell it. Um, Bitcoin is the type of asset you buy, you put it in, in the in the vault and you don't look at it. And you yep. just leave it alone for five years and you'll be very happy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny because yeah, I I bought, you know, relatively early in, in the grand scheme of things. I think it was four or five years ago that I bought in. I think it was about 4,000 or 4,500 when, when I bought in and then, you know, 
a year and a half, two years later, it went up to like 20,000. And, you know, I was similarly like, well, do I pull out now? You know, I've already quintupled my initial investment. And instead, you know, I, I didn't sell anything and just, just held on. And then of course it went down and it's super volatile and, um, you know, yeah, I'm sort of practicing what you're preaching here and just like putting it away not thinking about it. And hopefully, you know, 20 years down Look, the line, e- even if, even if you trade the market perfectly, right. You sell every peak and, and you buy every bottom, whatever, right. Like after taxes, cause you're going to be paying short-term capital gains potentially, right. You're going to be paying state taxes, you know, you're all in, it might cost you 35, 40%. You really have to be perfect if you're going to trade around. So, so if you want to trade, trade some GBTC in your IRA where there's no transaction costs and there's no taxes, but your core Bitcoin holding should not be traded because nobody's smart enough. Nobody has perfect knowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, you basically hoping to get lucky. Um, you will do really well in the long run by simply buying on a dollar cost average, right? So every month, every week, every quarter, just adding consistently to your position, um, at least get up to several Bitcoin, right? If you can, uh, and, and hold it for a few years and, you know, you'll be, you'll do great. So even, yeah. even though you knowing what you know now, obviously you should have sold at 20 and then got back in at 3,300, yeah. <laughs> but good luck doing that again. And right. you, you, you wouldn't, the funny thing is if you had sold at 20, you probably wouldn't have bought the bottom because yeah. everybody was so, I was buying in 3,000, 3,000. 500, 3,300 on Coinbase in December of 2018 because I was in the space. Yeah. And I was seeing all the negativity. Um, but, you know, most people weren't. Most people were calling for lower prices. And usually when something bottoms, it's because there's so much negativity. So everything you're going to see around you is going to tell you it's going to go lower and that's when it goes higher. Yeah. It's a classic kind of trading thing that you'll notice in almost every asset. Well, it's so fun to talk to you about that. I'll make sure to, in the introduction, have a, a disclaimer of this is not investment advice. So that's, uh, you know, people. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a financial advisor. Exactly. Right, right, right. So let's talk about the uh, the stock market. And we're, t- we're talking today is Monday, November 9th. And it was just announced that it seems like Pfizer has what it seems to be a really um, successful vaccine for the coronavirus and the markets are all up today. It's been so interesting to me, you know, and the world having such a like volatile political environment for the last four or five years that the market is just like remain ripping. And even with COVID where it dropped, you know, 30 or 40%, it's now back up to within a couple percent of all time highs. What's your opinion of the state of the market and the economy right now? And and how do we think about both like the super high unemployment and also like the very high stock market? It's an extremely bifurcated market, right? It's, it's a tale of two markets. On one hand, you've got technology, right? So these big technology companies and any company that does well in a pandemic. So that includes Walmart, right? That includes Target. That includes Procter & Gamble, right? That includes companies that generally you're going to do fine or maybe even see an increase. Clorox is another example, right? That see an increase in demand for their products. And then on the other hand, you have hotels and airlines and cruise ships and industrials and anything that has an affected supply chain. And so, you know, people who work in technology are doing great and people who worked in hospitality or restaurants are doing terribly. And that can all be reconciled in the stock market by the amount of liquidity. And so people get kind of 
too focused on the narrative, like case counts. There's 120,000 people that got sick, right? Um, or, you know, there's going to be a vaccine or there's not going to be a vaccine. But what really matters in markets is liquidity. And what the Fed and the government have done is pump so much money into the market that even without a vaccine, it's going to be hard for the market to go down that much because interest rates are basically zero. There's mm -hmm. essentially no alternative. If you put your money in the US dollar, you're going to lose money to inflation guaranteed, mm -hmm. which is what I was just talking about. Why part of why Bitcoin is such an attractive proposition. And so people are going to buy stocks. Um, and even though a lot of people out of work, there are also a lot of people that have stimulus money. And there are a lot of wealthy people that have actually done really well during the pandemic because their business is in, in a space like technology that hasn't been affected. So, so it, it's a much more complicated situation, which is why like when people were losing their minds in March, uh, I don't know if you remember this on Twitter, like everybody was like, Oh my God, the market's going to go down. It's going to be crazy. And I was giving a list of the companies I was buying in mid-March. I literally sent out a tweet on March 19th that listed out eight or 10 stocks that I thought were buys. All of those have bounced really, really high from them. Cause what I recognized was that there was a panic a liquidity panic going on that was going to be backstopped by the government. I think going forward, if there really is a vaccine, that changes the whole paradigm. Mm -hmm. But but even if there is no vaccine, the market was looking for stability after the election. I think Joe Biden is a huge is a huge uh, improvement over this sort of like whipsaw that people were feeling from Donald Trump. You know, if you talk to CEOs, none of them are willing to make long term plans, particularly if they have like you know, operations in China uh, or other countries like that, because you had this kind of CEO that lives and dies by the tweet that came yeah. out, you know, the next morning. And so I'm not going to invest more when, you know, the whole rules of the game might change in 20 mm -hmm. minutes based on the, the whims of a, of a very mercurial president. So I think some of what you're seeing today um, is optimism that Joe Biden's kind of boring, right? Like he's just, <laughs> he's just going to stay out of the way and, let America be America. Like we don't need yeah. America to try to be great. We just need to let America be America. Yeah. Just a little um, more stability. It may be. Exactly. Yeah. So I think, I think the, the vaccine thing will create some optimism and then it'll turn out that it takes longer than you think. And it's not quite as the efficacy isn't quite as good as you think. And so, so there's definitely risk to the downside. I, what I would recommend for most investors is do not have anything in the market today that you need in the next two or three years, right? Because yeah. there's definitely a very real risk at current valuations um, that you could see once the fiscal stimulus kind of wears off, uh, once once the Fed stops intervening quite at the same level, um, that the mar market could easily see a 30, 40, 50% decline. There's no mm -hmm. doubt in my mind that that's possible. And those tech stocks that everybody loves right now are the things that have the biggest downside risk in my opinion. Yeah. So like if you're very heavy on Tesla and Netflix and Zoom and Shopify and firms like that, those are all great companies, but they're priced like they're going to be the most important companies in the world for the next 20 years straight. And just in my limited experience of 20 years investing, almost any time that something has the feeling of being that inevitable and it's fully priced in, you know, Snowflake's another example is trading at mm -hmm. like 120 times revenue. Like it's a freaking data warehouse. It doesn't need to trade at 120 X. The only reason <laughs> yeah. why it is, is people are desperate for anywhere that they can put their money. Put their right money. Yeah. Wow, man. Well, this is so fun to talk about this stuff with you. I think we need to make this like a kind of a consistent thing where you can be the, uh, the chief, uh, you know, economics and financial markets correspondent here for the well, uh, podcast. I want to end by, uh, talking about the sale of your company, which you've alluded to a couple of times and we don't have to go into too much detail because I know you can't disclose too much. What I'm really curious about is, 
you know, you've mentioned that like you, you thought it was going to be maybe a little bit more successful. It's been a little bit heavier of a lift. It's been really stressful. It still sounds like it's going to be somewhat of a successful, um, you know, sort of solution for you. Can you talk a little bit about this emotional journey of like building something and nurturing it and helping it grow and then ultimately, uh, selling it? Yeah. So I think, I think, um, you know, getting liquidity for your shareholders is the end, you know, the final end goal, right? Uh, if you're a CEO of, of a startup that raises outside capital, obviously, mm-hmm. if you bootstrap and you don't raise any money, then you don't have that requirement. But, you know, at Brightscope, I always knew that I was eventually going to have to sell the company or take it public in order to to get that uh, return back to our shareholders. And I sold once I viewed the future upside growth opportunities being less valuable than the opportunity to take the money off that day. I think this time around, it's a little different because this company has been significantly less successful as an independent entity, right? We we never really achieved escape velocity. We never really, you know, when we sold Brightscope, we had more than 10 million in revenue, right? We never, mm-hmm. we never cracked a million of revenue here. And it's not because I'm significantly dumber or I work less harder, right, than I did 10 years ago. It's that sometimes markets don't evolve the way you think they're going to evolve. So when mm-hmm. we started digital assets data in the beginning of 2018. Remember, Bitcoin had just come off the 20,000 all-time high, and it was sort of universally believed that the institutions were coming to crypto, right? So like these big companies like Fidelity were all going to come in mass, mm-hmm. and there was going to be all this demand for data. And that just hasn't happened, right? The Bitcoin has essentially been a huge headwind over the last two years. It's basically been down from the day we started the company till now. Yeah. And so, so I went to the market and I said, look, we built a really compelling product and we have a great team, but the market isn't there. We would like to pair our technology and our team up with something larger, a larger organization that has more momentum. And frank, you know, frankly, there were four or five uh, companies out there that saw value in that. We engaged in you know, discussions with two or three of them like more advanced discussions and we got two offers and we signed an LOI a few weeks ago and we're currently, you know, deep in due diligence. And if everything goes perfectly, you know, the transaction will close in in two or three weeks. And so, you know, as I said, it it won't be like a fantastic outcome. Like nobody's going to get rich off the outcome, but you know, any exit is a good exit. Most startups, seed stage startups um, go to zero. Um, It's a, it's a majority. It's like 80%. Right. And so, um, while I'm not going to sit here and say like, Hey, it was a huge success and I'm super proud of what I did. The other side of it is, you know, we built a good product. We built a great team and ultimately the team, you know, the company's being acquired because, because the team is so strong. Mm-hmm. The demand for development talent in crypto right now is skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. Every company in the space is trying to hire and there aren't enough good engineers and our team loves each other. Super loyal. Everybody stuck around till the bitter end, right? And and so you know we're excited to join the acquirer and and keep building uh, with them. And you know I'm excited, frankly, to not be CEO for after 12 years <laughs> straight of basically being CEO uninterrupted. I'm I'm excited to you know play a more of a supporting role, um, you know, for some period of time. Well, Mike, dude, thanks so much for all your your expertise and your insights here. This has been absolutely fascinating for me personally, and I'm hoping uh, the listeners will will find it equally interesting as uh, you know the the more ultra centric talk. I wish you nothing but the best. I hope everything goes well here um, during due diligence, and hopefully, you know, there's 
the transaction goes through uh, without any issues. And uh, more importantly, or maybe not more importantly, but uh, equally importantly, I, uh, I wish you nothing but the best as you train for Western States uh, in 2021. And I hope uh, we can do this again on the podcast or, or see each other in person again soon. Thanks, Debo. Appreciate Thanks, it. Sir. It's been great. Okay. Thank you guys so much for being here. Thanks so much to Mike. I really enjoyed that episode, found it to be so fun and fascinating. I hope you guys do agree. If you resonated with Mike, I definitely recommend you connect with him on Twitter. You can find a link to his uh, to his bio there on, in the show notes where he is an awesome commentator. Always appreciate his analysis and his thoughts as it relates to the markets and the things that we talked about in this episode over on Twitter. So definitely go give him a follow. Again, I hope you guys all had a wonderful Thanksgiving Thanksgiving holiday. I hope, uh, you know, you guys are all staying safe and healthy under the circumstances. I hope we're all ready to finish the year out on a high note. I always appreciate having you here. Thanks so much for the love and support. I love you guys back. We'll talk to you again very soon. Okay, bye.